Welcome to the Health Ignited Podcast with your hosts, Dr. Nick and Sonia Jensen. We are partners, parents, business partners, doctors, yoga teachers, and retreat leaders. We promise to bring you real conversations to awaken and ignite your potential to live your best life possible. Join us each week as we dive into topics varying from brain health, biohacking, hormones, and longevity, to relationships, parenting, meditation, and more. Together, creating community and building stronger foundations for the generations to come. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Health Ignited. Dr. Sonia here with Dr. Nick. And we are talking to one of our soul sisters today, a colleague, a good friend, Dr. Nisha Winters. She is a sought after luminary in a global healthcare authority in integrative cancer research, who consults with physicians all around the world, bridging ancient therapies with advancement in modern medicine in the digital era. She is amazing. Her personal journey with cancer and a medical career spanning over 25 years has Dr. Nasha on a mission to educate and empower the nearly 50%, I'm gonna say that again, 50% of the population expected to have cancer in their lifetime. And this line of love that she speaks to all the time, prevention is the only cure. She's also written a book. Um, she's a best-selling co-author of The Metabolic Approach to Cancer, which everybody should be getting. And it's received many accolades. And I just think she is a woman with so much knowledge. She doesn't know it, but we're BFFs. And... <laughs> know it <laughs> and you know she's just someone that we really look up to she's also a naturopathic physician and we feel like it's so important to have mentors people that we look up to she's got a new project that i hope she talks about um as we're talking to her so welcome and thank you oh my gosh you guys like we could just talk forever about this <laughs> like, we, we almost did before we pressed yeah, record I know. I know. <laughs> we have to record recorded that but yeah it's like, like i've known you both forever and your mission and your what you share in the world is so beautiful as well and you know i definitely cyber stalk both of you and i just love your humanity and your just rawness that you will put forward, you know, you don't, you don't candy coat it. You are very real. And I think that leads so much into our conversation today that um, in, in moments of intensity, despair, we can offer a couple, you know, we kind of go a couple different ways. We either bury our head in the sand mm. or we become paralyzed by terror or we Pollyanna sugar coat it or as my grandma said, put lipstick on a pig. Mm. And <laughs> all of those Oh my God, that's hilarious. <laughs> but all of those things have, of course, there are great strategies of survival, right? right? Yeah. But they also have some of their um, you know, downsides. And so yeah. one of the things we wanted to make sure we talked about today is, is what can we do under times of you know, being faced with darkness, being faced with the biggest challenges of your life, of your mortality, of your spiritual awakening, whatever that may be, mm -hmm. um, is what we're going to touch on. I mm -hmm. think that you wanted to, to go there today. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you were faced with that at a very young age. And, I, you know, we'd love for you to share that story with the audience mm -hmm. of when you had your um, journey with cancer and what that was like. You know, the first time I really got to know you guys was speaking at one of Dr. Pompa's gatherings, gosh, March of last year. It feels like a decade ago. I know. <laughs> oh my gosh, very different world back then. And, you know, one of the things that I think people think when they're diagnosed with cancer is that it just came out overnight and that you just kind of went to bed one night without it and woke up the next morning with it. 
And a, a, a sort of journey I took you all on was the story of a, a little person that was born into this world under really intense circumstances of, of kind of lack of being wanted, um, you know, as, as sort of a, a, just a mess of where it was, along with having a lot of digestive issues and allergies to formula and a lot of stress and duress and violence and um, things in the home growing up and a lot of problems with being put on lots of medications for the digestive issues well before they were seven. And the point is, is like kind of showing you the layering cake of this little person's life. It was no wonder that by the time they were 19, 20 years old, that a diagnosis of stage four ovarian cancer was labeled on them. And what really shocked the group was that was my story. And, mm -hmm. and to talk about that it wasn't like I went to bed overnight and this was the deal or that some people just say, well, those were just bad genetics. I mean, it was another, gosh, it wasn't until five years after my diagnosis that people started even testing for the BRCA gene and realized I had that genetic predisposition, which we could have all guessed just given the family of origin. But also at that time I was in undergrad and started learning about the concepts of psychoneuroimmunology, thanks to the work of Candace Pert, you know, who's no longer with us, and the work of Bruce Lipton, and others out there realizing that our immune system is completely connected to our psychological system and a trauma system. Since then, we've learned a lot about the ACE scores, adverse childhood events. And as someone who came from a place of a lot of adverse childhood events, um, it was pretty much what we understand today, you know, here in 2020, 2020 vision, versus what we understood back in 1991 at the time of my diagnosis, was that truly our thoughts and life experiences will impact our ability to be resilient or resistant to uh, conditions in our lives, to situations and reactions to things mm -hmm. in our lives. And so by the time I was 19 or 20 years old, I will tell you very honestly, I did not really have a will to live. I just sort of went through my day and my life kind of a little bit of a drama queen, but in the wrong places. I think I wanted the distraction of what was going on in my private life in my home life. So I made sort of outside external distractions and created chaos there for a survival mechanism. But I also had tried to take my life a few times before mm -hmm. that diagnosis. And I think in the beginning, a little bit of seeking of attention, but then after a while, just a place where now I understand looking back that my gut brain was completely disconnected. My HPA axis was a hot stinking mess. My body was completely ruled by hormones that were taken over to treat various conditions from autoimmune, polycystic ovarian, endometriosis, et cetera. I share this background for your folks to understand that this was a cumulative effect of nearly two decades by the time it was big enough and loud enough to capture my attention. But I had been trying to have people capture that attention, but because I was that sort of cry wolf kind of gal and everyone kind mm -hmm. of saw me as that, even the medical world started to treat me differently. And basically like, oh, she's just a little histrionic, et cetera. By the time it was big enough and loud enough, I was too far gone to even have standard of care options. And they gave me, this is the irony, they're like, with treatment, we give you three months. Without treatment, we give you three months. So it was sort of like, mm. and they then also told me in the same breath, your organ function is so compromised right now. I was in kidney failure. I was in liver failure. I had fluid around my heart, um, in my lungs and my body. I was nine months pregnant. The ascites was overwhelming. I was completely malnourished. My electrolytes were off. My oxygen saturation was beyond. I mean, you guys are doctors. You know how bad that is. I likely looking back had days 
maybe weeks, not three months. But they did tell me that a single dose of the treatment of choice for that type of cancer, unfortunately still that choice today, almost 30 years later, was carbotaxol. And knowing that carbotax, um, uh, carboplatin is such a horrible kidney um, you know, toxin, they knew it would kill me right out. So they basically sent me to hospice. Mm -hmm. And that's what kind of leads to the unfolding of the next nearly three decades just seems crazy um, to be able to say that. It'll be 29 years in October, 2020 that I was diagnosed. It was October 21st, 1991. So we're coming full wow. circle in a time wow. when someone's like, you're going to die, you're going to die, you're going to die. Right. And you know, one of the things that we were talking about before, Nick was asking, like, let's talk about sort of that resilience, that grit that helps you get through these experiences and that when you have a label, you know, placed over you, what that does to your psychology and how to overcome it. For me, in that moment, it was a pilot light being turned on. When someone finally said, you don't have a choice, mm -hmm. I think in that moment in our world, because we're seeing a lot of it right now, you have that place of complete disempowerment or you have a place of complete empowerment. And we're seeing that happening in real time in the world around us. So for some of us in a place of disempowerment, we just collapse within ourselves and die, or we misdirect our rage or our disempowerment, or we, you know, feel completely victimized by the situation and just kind of fester in the dirty diaper of it all and just kind of just stay stuck in this. Or you can become part of the solution and mm -hmm. you can seek the solution, even if there isn't one yet. And you can become engaged in a whole new way that may actually be the very reason and purpose that you came to this planet which is clearly what it became for me. Mm -hmm. And any one of those things could have taken my life just from me choosing to go down those other rabbit holes would have snuffed my candle very, very quickly. But instead it invoked something within me. And honestly, what it invoked was rage. Mm -hmm. And I think rage and anger is a very healthy, mm -hmm. very healthy emotion. But when we direct it at ourselves or at another, that's when it gets a little sticky and that's when it can cause more damage, more inflammation, more toxicity to the environment. But when it can be directed in a place of, let me create a whole new way, a whole new thought, a whole new way of doing it that's never been done before. Because if the answers were there, we would have done it, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. If, if there was a cure for cancer or a cure for racism or a cure for disempowerment or a cure for, you know, you know, prevention of viral infections or whatever, we would have figured that out by now. Yeah. And so that's where we are kind of in this conversation today of what has culminated over nearly three decades to realize that we are actually far more powerful than we're led to believe yeah. and that we can help foster and nurture and sort of reignite that pilot light in each of us by being a living, breathing example of finding a brand new pathway and a brand new languaging to describe our experiences. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was so beautifully put. And, you know, before we got on this call, I was in the shower. It's my only time where I get to be by myself and think. And, and, and you get sauna time. Sometimes. I get sauna time too sometimes. Um, but I was reflecting on your story and just thinking about, you know, how we conversate with our children and some of the beliefs that get instilled in us when we're so young of how many limits we have mm. instead of how much potential we have. 
and that you know there's we were watching mary poppins last night and i loved when she kept saying the impossible is possible i can't remember what it was mm-hmm. but just hearing that over and over again is so important to recognize that nothing's impossible but there's possibility that we have this mass potential that we don't have to put limits on us but if we grow up in an environment where that's all we're seeing then come face with an event like you said, we can make those two choices. We can either keep going down that path or recognizing that there's so much light and power within us. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what you did. Right. Yeah. yeah. Your, your story gets me every time. I mean, oh. like I'm, I get emotional every time I hear you speak your story because it's looking at you like you're a gorgeous woman. You're, you're successful. You're doing so many amazing things in the world. Mm-hmm. And like, it's, it's almost like I don't believe you when you when when you say the story yeah. because it's it's yeah. so profound it's so universal we all, it all tugs our heartstrings because we all see where we went the wrong way for a long period of time in our lives and it's hard to believe that you went through that and so like i my question to you is like how do you let patients know that like you know mm-hmm. hearing your story they almost like they see you go like no she didn't go through that there's no way like there's such a massive transformation that can happen for people and you're living proof of that. So how do you help people understand that? Yeah. Well, you know, in doing this for so long for myself, first of all, I did not share my story very outwardly. There was a very small handful of people close to me who knew what was going on. Part of it, and still to this day, I never associated with being a cancer patient. Never did. Um, And so part of that, and even now what I'm finding just for your listeners to hear this is that in the last couple of years, since my book has been out and since I have been more out there with it and I am telling the story more, I will tell you, I feel these little tugs of the seductiveness to fall back in that victimization Mm. in that time of trauma. So I walk that fine line of feeling into when is my story helpful for others and harmful for me? And mm-hmm. when do I know where to cut that off? That's a trick. I'm literally working with that one. I don't have the answer yet. I'm still learning that for myself. Um, but that's something that I start to realize that some people in my practice, I've watched this many times over, they get so attached to their mm-hmm. story, totally. to their diagnosis, and they can't get out of that. And so perhaps one of my strategies was to completely disassociate from it for many years. And I think that there's no right or wrong way, but I think finding that pendulum landing somewhere in in the midst of the two is what I'm still struggling with in my own process. So please don't believe that I've got it figured out. (laughs) At the same token, I do know that the seductiveness of the story and that people's illnesses, no matter what the diagnosis is, can often give them a lot more than what they received prior to being diagnosed. Mm -hmm. And so I will often tell patients or ask patients, not tell, ask patients, what will you lose if you heal from this? Mm-hmm. Not question. what will you gain, but what will you lose? And it's interesting because the way, you know, they kind of get this, this look uh, uh, because maybe for instance, maybe having that death sentence or that diagnosis was the first time somebody listened to them or the first time somebody cared for them and that they could put down maybe their heavy load for just a moment. And that is, it's like the first hit of heroin. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. that's a sweetness that's hard to get again after that. So I want people to recognize that our addiction yeah. to having an illness to, to you know, to, to, to get the things we're missing in our lives is, is something to also make sure you're checking in with regularly. Because mm-hmm. what I want people to realize is that their story can be a launching pad. 
It can move them into something else because the, my patients who really heal, I always ask the three questions and we've talked about this as well on previous discussions, but you know, I always ask what brings you joy? Okay. For what are you grateful? And what did you come here to do? Mm -hmm. And those answers right there will tell me the prognosis immediately mm -hmm. of that patient. If they can't find joy, or if they say things like, I have joy when my family all gathers around me, which they're now doing since I have been diagnosed with cancer, that's mm -hmm. a red flag, right? Or gratitude when they're saying like, now I'm grateful that everyone's bringing me meals and cleaning my house. There's a place we start to realize, wow, they don't know how to ask for the help they need when they're well. Mm -hmm. So now an illness is their excuse for self-care. And so mm -hmm. we try work really hard to repurpose around that. And definitely we want to take a moment to like everyone needs, we need to all have the opportunity to really be still and have be fully cared for. But when people start to stay there, that's where it becomes problematic. And then the next question, purpose or passion, what did you come here to do? If people can't answer that, I know that their prognosis is actually quite grim. Mm -hmm. And so those who can't answer it, that's when I say, all the studies out there show that if your purpose is a prognostic factor in recovery from any chronic illness. So if you aren't clear on what that is today, here's your opportunity to start to explore that. And you often don't have it, especially in those stress moments when you're kind of disembodied from the trauma of a diagnosis or the massive loss of something or something very stressful in your life to have like a deep digging in. So that's when you need external support, a therapist, a life coach, a counselor, a naturopathic doctor, you know, uh, somebody who can help you see the opportunity. Now, as you mentioned a moment ago, that is available to us in these situations. And so when we look at the worst possible thing in front of us, our mortality, being oppressed, dying of, a, of an illness alone in a hospital because our loved ones aren't allowed to be near us, those are real fears. Those are definitely our, our modern day saber-toothed tigers. Mm -hmm. And yet, the reality of those situations is far more grim in our mind mm -hmm. than they are in the reality. And so watching that, like a really good example, I have a very, one of my best friends, her mother during the midst of the coronavirus crisis ended up with some symptoms that landed her in a hospital in another state away from her where the family couldn't get to the mom with her being diagnosed with a, a huge terror in her esophagus and a metastasis from a lung cancer that they didn't know was there. And this is a woman that we've all kind of been watching slowly kill herself for years in choices around diet and lifestyle. And basically she dug in deep and you'll crack up. Her will to live was about getting to her next cigarette and a camping trip she had planned with her boyfriend in July. Wow. wow. <laughs> Whatever does the job. Yeah. Right? The weirdest thing. This woman is now out of hospice, at home, sitting on her patio, having her cigarettes every day, planning that her camping trip in a couple weeks. There was a purpose. Yeah. It may not be what you and I would think is a purpose, but it was a very clear purpose for her. Right. It wasn't about watching her grandkids grow up. It wasn't about, you know, like all the, it was these one simple things, but it's yeah. so funny because it became so clear and so focused for her that we all kind of laughed about it in the beginning. Mm -hmm. And now we're like, oh, it's humbling as all get out. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's the thing that gives her joy, right? Those three right. questions that you're exactly asking. Exactly it. And for her in that moment with that cigarette, that's probably her only connection with God. Mm -hmm. right. In any moment of the day with spirit in any moment, it's like that breath 
that prana, that Mm -hmm. chi, that moment of her time, like your time in the show, like maybe that is her one time of feeling in this world. Mm-hmm. Amazing. So even I have to get out of the way of other people's agendas on what right. brings joy and gratitude and purpose. So she's been my perfect teacher in the last few months of realizing that, well, that's, she pretty much answered those questions mm-hmm. on, on and hit it, you know, so what knows, when we hear, six, you know, who knows? <laughs> yeah. Well, when we hear the word purpose, we think it's this big grand thing, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like, we have to know the exact thing we were put on this earth to do, but maybe it is just to go for that swim in that lake, or maybe it is just to yeah. have that chocolate chip mint ice cream, yes. you know, dairy free, <laughs> on the porch by yourself, whatever, whatever. I know, it is. I know what you're doing Story today. Here. <laughs> it's so funny because I think we all think that it has to be, like you said, grandiose, and it yeah. it doesn't. Because when you're with someone who is facing the last moments of their lives, they're never like, ah, I wish I'd found the the cure for cancer or the the solution to world peace. Or it is so much about just to be able to hold someone's hand for one last time, or mm-hmm. to be able to say you love someone for one last, it's, it always is these very simple, subtle gestures. And I think our world around us puts this extra pressure on, you know, everyone has to be a rock star. Everyone has to be the, you know, president of the United States, which hopefully nobody wants that job right now, but there's a lot, like, there's a lot of those moments. It's like, you know, maybe, maybe what it is, is that the person just wants to maybe, you know, have a garden. Mm-hmm. and nourish nourish the soil nourish their bodies and maybe share that share their abundance with their neighbor i mean that is actually mm-hmm. in the world around us right now is a huge you know that is a grandiose mm-hmm. gesture mm-hmm. in the world around us when we're all kind of collapsing in upon mm-hmm. ourselves yeah i think that's really powerful and then the next part of that is here's the tangible i am a bit of a data junkie so as much as i know spirit and you know the mind, the body are so intimately connected. I also recognize that it's sometimes really painful for people to dive into the mental, emotional, spiritual from the get-go. So we often start with a very tangible, like a diet diary or a chronometer reading of their macronutrients or some instant feedbacks from you know HRV technologies or you know ketone monitoring or just some basic blood tests or functional blood tests that give us a snapshot of what's going under, going on under the hood mm-hmm. that is needing our attention. And even a simple survey, like at the beginning of my book, these 10 different sections with these 10 different questions underneath for people to go, wow, my priority, like today I saw something on a Facebook forum of breast cancer women. Someone saying, oh my gosh, I just did nation's survey from this book and I'm seven out of 10 on all 10 categories. And I wrote back, you know, in my response of, it doesn't matter which one, where you start, Mm-hmm. Because it's like a big quilt and anywhere you tug on that thread, it's going to impact the whole. So mm-hmm. choose the one that feels the easiest for you to mm-hmm. tackle in this moment. And next thing you know, you'll be hitting all of those 10 pathways simultaneously. Mm-hmm. And I think that's like it as well. People get so overwhelmed of where to start. Like we think we somehow have to have it perfected even before we know how to do it. That's a weird thing that's happened to all of us, right? Yeah. I got to have it all figured out before I start. Well, then <laughs> never start. <laughs> yeah. Small, simple steps. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So a funny thing, I am petrified. I mean, cancer does not scare me. Social 
media technology scares the living crap out of me. <laughs> yeah, so and, yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I'm in like a women's kind of um, entrepreneurial group because everyone's like, you, you know, why aren't you like, why aren't your student loans paid off? I'm like, because I'm a horrible business person and I have a purpose, purpose and passion and I keep forgetting that I should probably put some of that into my own bank account. But that's another story in and of itself. But what cracks me up is they forced me, encouraged me, pushed me over a ledge of doing a Facebook Live. I did my first Facebook live on Thursday. I literally. That's so hard to believe. Like you're yeah. so good but at speaking. You're so... You guys. Yeah. <laughs> what is this thing? I know. <laughs> Who's on the other side yeah, of this? To me. Seriously. And someone's like, look at her hair right now. She looks like a, you know, like <laughs> all of my little, they start oh, to yeah. go like a Rolodex in my head. And so it's funny when I'm interacting with someone else, I can feel them. I can see their facial expressions. I can feel their energy. If I'm in a room, I don't know how like all the, you know, millennials can do this. Just talking to a complete inanimate screen. Mm. It's just so right. that is incredibly un un unnatural for me. So. Yeah. Well, cause you're, you're so much about connection and as all of us are. And I think the next generation is just growing up in this um, world where unfortunately there's a lot of disconnect totally. and they're getting that connection from the screens. They're getting that connection from this new way of communicating with mm -hmm. the world, which can be really beautiful. And also at the same time, our human nature is to connect like this is we get something out of this um, interaction and i think that's really missing and i know you and i in the past have talked about even in cancer with cells you know yeah. when that cell goes rogue and starts creating its own colony and its own um, system over here it's because yeah. it didn't now all of a sudden belong to this one here so that belonging piece i feel is so important with like what we're dealing with in the world today and and within our bodies and within our own minds when you know a diagnosis happens so well, there's so many layers to i was that. saying when you bring that into your first reaction to hashtag social distancing oh yes my first reaction right. to that word i just i knew you know we were talking about you you were talking about your friend and her mom being you know a state away and the first thought that goes into my mind when that social distancing happened, the weddings will be okay. The celebrations will be okay. What about the losses? People that have lost those that they love and they can't grieve together. So that just that programming of social distance, disconnect, instead of using like physical distancing or whatever, it's like some other way of using the same languaging, but not in a way that's going to program our psyche to think that it's okay to not look somebody in the eye or smile at them out of fear. Oh my gosh, there's so many pieces here that are just like shooting off in my brain. I mean, one of them, first of all, is um, the cultural experience of loss, grief. Mm. You know, this is really powerful. And if we can't lean into each other in a moment like that, that really does disable us in many ways and drive the chasm even further. And, you know, in, in Sanskrit, the word grief means guru. And so mm -hmm. guru, of course, is teacher. Mm -hmm. And here it is, you have this teaching moment of, of helping you awaken to the precious limitations of, you know, the, of the physical time that we're in right now, despite it being unlimited really in other ways. But that sort of robs us of a spiritual experience and of a, of a possible growth experience to to know that this is part of a natural life cycle as well mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so i think there's that piece the other piece is you you spoke to the disconnect in general the social disconnect all these pieces you know I, our colleague tina kazor a really well-known fab known naturopathic oncologist 
she describes the cancer cell as a sociopath, you know, mm -hmm. and, and it's sort of like, I am so rogue that I will destroy everything in my path, knowing eventually I will kill the host, but it doesn't matter. I'll go down with the sinking ship. Mm. That is also something we're seeing very much in this world right now. It's sort of like, screw it all, napalm it, you know, and let's <laughs> turn it all down. And you know, and even that's the way we treat cancer. It's like, we literally approach, like, we're going to napalm the field and hope that a few little sprouts make it to get you, you know, to start growing again and get you to the other side. So I think that's very interesting. And then the philosophy of the anthroposophical physicians that are now celebrating their hundredth year anniversary this year, we yeah. were all supposed to be doing it in person in um, Switzerland in September, which remains to be seen. But from the philosophy of Rudolf Steiner and Ada Wegman, the sort of, um, founders of mistletoe therapy and the treatment of oncology of cancer. Um, this is where they started talking about that cancer itself is the ultimate disconnect, the ultimate loss of connection. So it's loss of being able to communicate with cells next door to it inside the body. It's lost signaling. It's lost, you know, it's sort of like it's become isolated. It's become disenfranchised. It's become um, suppressed. It's become inflamed. I mean, does that sound familiar? Mm -hmm. The world around us, the world is a festering cancer right now. All mm -hmm. of it. And what we've been doing, we've been napalming the living crap out of our food, our planet. There will be retaliation because what you do to the soil impacts your internal soil, which impacts your way of thinking and connecting and interacting in this world. And when you have things like the disconnect on the very physiologic level, there goes your oxytocin stores, which is yeah. how we procreate, how mm -hmm. we connect with another, how we get through trauma of any time in our life. And when you can't hold someone and give a 20 second hug to release that naturally, or when you are in such a state of perpetual fear that cortisol is suppressing your, your oxytocin levels so that you can't um, have, have a good bowel movement, have an orgasm, make eye contact with another human being. So like in our autistic community, they're very severely uh, limited mm -hmm. in oxytocin really because their brains are on fire and they're constantly mm -hmm. in a state of duress at the gut-brain axis. It's like, that's where we've actually seen treatment with oxytocin being helpful for that population. I wish we could just put a nice hearty dose of oxytocin into the water supply. No <laughs> like, kidding. Well, you know, like, well, a good idea. Like, like, a, like a collective orgasm. You are onto something. Yeah, I, I think so. I am that. Yes, I am. That's where, you know, this morning I was watching because I really don't watch the news, but um, I have a, a, my niece and her family and her child, they're, they're, they're black and we're living here in a part of LA where you can't now walk your dog without feeling something's going on. So mm -hmm. my sister-in-law and I were watching the news this morning to see what's going on around us. And, you know, I, it's, there's so much bad news, but then I started seeing, because that's what I do in my way of surviving what I've survived and helping patients survive what they're facing and how I see the world ahead of us is I have to seek the positives. I have to seek the potential, the, the, the ways that we can unlock and open what is innate in every single one of us, the goodness and the light in every single one of us is there. And that's how I survived what I grew up through, how I survived, a, 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 you know, a, horrible diagnosis and prognosis, how I've been met with that and different things in my lifetime again and again and helped thousands of other patients find the light within themselves as well. I have to believe 
that maybe this cancer is finally loud enough to get our attention, this global cancer to help us all collectively heal. I have to see it as the ultimate healing crisis mm-hmm. for us to finally break free. That's right. Yeah, mm-hmm. sometimes things just need to be shaken up to bring to the surface because all of this was already there, but we were distracted from it or we were pushing it away. And so now it's here and now we have an opportunity to do what's right with it. And, you know, I wrote a post the other day about just how if we're able to see the other as ourselves, mm-hmm. even, the, even the bully, even the perpetrator, because they too have that story. They too have a story of not being worthy or not belonging or something. So now they're acting out of fear and hate and all these emotions that we all feel, but just at different levels. But if we can start to see the other as us and that same thing can happen within our bodies, that's just going to shift everything. And now's the opportunity to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You mentioned some earlier, um, if you don't mind jumping in here, um, you mentioned that you had to, or you, you allowed yourself to feel an experience of rage and anger. And I couldn't help but think of Dr. David Hawkins and his sort of power versus force, you know, of, of these different frequencies of emotions, like apathy is being like the worst experience of the human condition. And then you move through fear and then eventually get to, to rage or anger. And it's this tipping point into positivity where you're sort of on this border where you, you cross over into courage mm-hmm. and, yeah. I, and I couldn't help but, you know, this, this whole dialogue is, is allowing me to see that that's actually where we're at. Like all the rioting, like the fighting, the, the antagonism, the, 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 the censorship, all this is just, we're like at that point where we can all collectively move into courage. Should and we choose how, it? Right. And how interesting that we all had a collective global experience for the first time in human mm-hmm. ex- yeah. existence leading up to this sort of postulate bursting. And what I thought was also fascinating is how there are protests arriving, like um, rising all over the world in sort of solidarity of what's happening on the Mm -hmm. soil of this country, which is so also like amazing to me of we can't not feel it from each other anymore. Maybe it's finally dissolved all of those contrived barriers and perceptions that are really allowing us to, you know, be our little mycelium net to connect Mm -hmm. and communicate back and reconnect us Mm -hmm. to each other in a profound, profound way. And that, you know, in Chinese medicine, the description of anger is the will to become. Mm. So it's fascinating that you talked about that. I'd forgotten about that piece because that is, it's like, yeah, it can pull you back down and collapse upon it. But it feels like maybe just in the whole timing of things around us, that it was finally the energy, the, the, you know, because we've kind of been entropy for some time, because you said apathy is the most toxic, complacency is the most toxic. People without opinion, Mm -hmm. those are the most, like, those are the people without purpose. Those are the folks that's dangerous territory, Mm. you know, and like even cancer exploding in the body, it's very much on this, you know, what we're seeing on the collective and the media, et cetera. But once we push through that, the level of relief and peace and understanding and connection is really like at our fingertips. Like we can really move forward. And yeah. there will always be a few rogue sale- cells afterwards. Oh, totally. Like always, like, we all have cancer all the time. It's yeah. how we as a collective, externally and internally, communicate and sort of maintain 
synergy and harmony and listen to those signals. Because as you said in the very beginning of this interview, it's like, we've been, this has been brewing for some time, just like mm-hmm. a cancer has been brewing for at least seven to 10 years for the research. It's not, like I said, you don't go to bed with it. It's there mm-hmm. just under the surface. And finally it gets big enough and loud enough that something has to change. Mm-hmm. You, you said something that right there that was extremely important in that that's, we all have cancer. You know, just like we're all feeling into what's happening globally and it's like, it's starting to surface. So can you sort of speak to that a little bit? Because I think maybe some people who are listening don't yet understand that, that it's, that it's there. It's a part, it's a part of who we are. Exactly. And there's, you know, there's people like Dr. Nina Bissell as in like the vacuum cleaner. Fantastic TED talk. Probably 10 years old now, um, all about the concept as her being a, at that time, 35 year cancer researcher, she started seeing that cancer cells exist everywhere. If you biopsy enough, if you search far and far and wide enough, you will find cancer cells in every, you know, organism, you know, of, of, of the animal kingdom, right. Um, in this realm and what she started realizing, and this of course is how I think and focus well before I ever knew of her was that it was what was happening in the medium of which those cells were frolicking about in that was telling them to grow baby grow or stay kind of dormant and hanging out and sort of not causing any problems. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like every, you know, we always kind of talk about, there's always one bad apple. Well, the bad apple isn't a problem unless we start to maybe put the whole basket of apples into like a dark, dank environment or pour something really nasty on top of that basket or, you know, throw some, you know, some flies into the piece. You know, like the the point is, is that she started to recognize as have many others is the terrain, the extracellular matrix, she calls it. Some people call it the cytoplasm, basically the goo in our body that our cells are floating around in determines whether we turn certain things on or off. Mm-hmm. We, you know, we, when things start to get broken down in our bodies, they should be naturally kind of gobbled up and excreted to make room for the new. But when we are constantly in a state where we just keep like cramming in more toxins from the world around us, maybe we eat graze from sunup to sundown and even right before we go to bed and then get up in the middle of the night to have a snack, and <laughs> no break, right? We can't go more than four hours of putting something in our mouths. In fact, there was a study that said we put something in our mouths 21 times a day on average. And that's not just like wow. 21 bites, 21 yeah. distinct times that we're eating. Like the, you have no time to like process and now yes. it's a state of like overwhelm, overstimuli. We don't process anything. And that's when the garbage collects and it takes its toll on our energy processing. And then those cells get basically suffocated. They stop doing cellular respiration. They stop breathing. And then they start to mutate and they take signals from other things like maybe stress or inflammation or maybe a massive toxic exposure or a major experience of loss or stress in the world around you. And suddenly they're off and running mm-hmm. where they were fine until the straw that broke the camel's back. And it's the folks like Dr. Lawrence Lashan who wrote the book, Cancer as a Turning Point. Mm-hmm. It's an oldie, but a goodie, but man, it's a powerful book because he was a researcher who was able to show that even though we know that cancer takes seven to 10 years to grow in the body, six to six months to uh, 24 months prior to the diagnosis, there's often kind of a final, you know, 
mm-hmm. gasoline pour with a, a match lit on it of some major event. So it would not surprise me that six months to two years from now, after what's been going on on the planet around us, we will see an explosion. And my hope and prayer is that people will be like, wait a minute, I don't have to go down that path. Right. I can start looking under the hood right now. I can start changing everything. I can start looking for seeds of possibility versus weeds of destruction and start to change that out. And so it is in our best interest to get curious, dig deeper, see what's hiding in there that may be unknown to you in this moment and take inventory and do something about it because we, we are really able to turn this around, whether it's before it gets going, during the process or after the process to prevent it from coming back again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, and we were put in, like Nick always says, like a forced timeout by Mother mm-hmm. Earth yes. or, you know, whatever the um, energy was that did that for us. And like you were saying that, you know, we're so used to putting stuff in our mouth every day, all day, and there's no time to just for the body to reset to process and all that. And it's the same thing with our minds. We haven't really given ourselves that time because we're distracted. We're taking the kids here. We're doing this. We're going to work and then just surviving the day and not watching really the news. watching yeah. the news, you know, feeding, feeding the fears that are already there or the old belief systems about not being enough, not doing enough and all these things. And we were forced into this space of where we had to do that. We had to reflect. And, you know, in that reflection, there was choices. We could either go down a path of, more fear and more resentment and more of that or there's a path of like okay reflection okay what is my purpose what does give me joy what what am i grateful for like you were speaking to in the beginning and so i hope with this conversation people really see that piece and how interconnected all of this is like we've been like given this mirror and we can either choose to look away from it or we can really look into our eyes and see okay what what is actually going on and what can we what can we create for the future yeah Mm-hmm. And I hope it is, I mean, it, you know, my, my husband always says to me, gosh, he goes, you, you always see the best in every situation. And he said, sometimes it's not the person that you're offering that to does not deserve it. You know, and I've learned that the hard way that I've had people say to me, you know, people need to earn your trust before you give it. But I don't, I don't know if I can live that way, mm-hmm. you know? And so I'm, I'm way more aware and I, I listen a bit more to my instinct that, okay, I've, I've offered this to you. And you can, you know, take full advantage in the positive way, or you can kick the, you know, plate out of my hand, and I'll learn now sooner than later. Of okay, we're good now, move on. But I feel like it should be offered up as the possibility and the potential in each of us to mm-hmm. to shine, to step in, to mm-hmm. relight that pilot light in some way. My my niece that I was telling you about, her father is a like a major motivational speaker in the Virginia area outside of D.C. and he, you know, he came from a really troubled youth, you know, along among kind of very like bad crowd, you know, drug deal, like ba- background and like major stuff, you know, 30, 40 years ago um, and pulled his life together. And now he is basically a, a source of hope and inspiration to show how much uh-huh. can be done and change. And when he was communicating with, you know, his, his Facebook live group yesterday, and when he was communicating to my niece's uh, partner, who wanted to get out and get out in the riots and the whole bit. He's like, first you must get the emotion, you know, Mm. calm down because if you're coming from, if you're reacting, you may become part of the problem, not part of the solution. Responding 
takes a moment of silence, takes a moment of breath, takes a moment of introspection to understand what do I want to do with this emotion? What do I, how do I see what I'm going to offer that could change things for the better? And I thought, wouldn't that just be the way everything in life should be about? And we are so, such a reactionary world. And especially that we can all hide behind a screen and react even more like you know, troll away <laughs> on social media. I'm like, ah. that's probably why I hate like a Facebook live is I don't really need someone pointing out every like, you know, malfected thing of my being, yeah. which they do. I have a pretty thin skin for that. And I have to remember that there are some people who choose to see everything bad in the world. And that's, I still hope that they wake up because I recognize it's coming from a deep, deep wound, right? It's not like they came from the perfect environment and that's just how they see the world. That doesn't happen that way, mm -hmm. right? But to hear um, what Algernon was saying in his, his posts and sharing out there, I was like, gosh, this is so true for everything mm -hmm. in the world and as a person. And that's the place, like even in our immune systems, we need to be responding versus reacting. And even the way we deal with a cancer, you know, a cancer inflame, you know, cancering process or a COVID reaction is based on this very simple concept of your immune system. Three R's. Recognize. Great. Recognize what's you, what's something else. Respond. Notice the word respond and remember. Mm. So instead it's sort of like, I don't recognize it, you versus me, us versus them, and then I react, and then I don't remember, and history just keeps repeating itself. Mm -hmm. This is the world of our broken collective immune system as well. It's pretty interesting. Yeah. You you just spoke to exactly what our our reaction was to the coronavirus. I mean, literally, we, we forgot that our immune system knows how to remember. Our immune system knows how to respond. And our immune system knows how to communicate with the outside world and how to operate. I mean, same thing with the cancer diagnosis. And, and as you're speaking here, I go, I go back in your story to that, that moment where you had three months. And those three months, you, you were on this opportunity um, of just doing probably what, I don't know, 90% of people probably would have done is like, well, give me the treatment. There's, that's my only hope. Right. And so um, yeah. what kind of information did you have to, to make that response uh, in that moment? Because that's so important for yeah. what's happening for all of us right now. You know, it's interesting at that time, because there was just a Dewey Decimal System and no Dr. Google. Um, <laughs> well, that aged me a little bit there, but there was that piece also was at a, a very poor liberal arts school that had really outdated textbooks, thank God, because I stumbled upon, when I started researching everything I could on cancer, I ran across the work of Otto Warburg, mm. okay, which is all about the metabolic concepts of cancer. This is a, a function and destruction of whether your cells are breathing you know, um, or, or suffocating and whether the body's fermenting. So kind of like not firming, like good, not like a sauerkraut, you know, but more <laughs> on, you know, that's not got any fresh water coming into it and, and, and like the fuel sources coming in. And so, because I was also dealing with so much, um, ascites, um, uh, I couldn't, I didn't have much real estate to put in food. So I, in essence, fasted for two and a half months because I couldn't and everything. I mean, this is a little TMI, but everything I put in would come back out to the point where I was even throwing up feces for a period of time. And I had a bowel obstruction the whole bit. So I will tell you right now, the thing that probably saved my life most were three major things. One of them is I had to stop. I had to stop working my three jobs. 
I had to take a, a, a leave of absence from my 21 hours of biology, uh, chemistry, dual major, science heavy course, coursework. I was working grave shifts at a detox center as well. So there was, I got off my shift of that. I did a family fast, a two year family fast. So it was a time when you could easily block your phone number. You know, there was no cell phone. It was easy time to just fall off the face of the earth. I had to get away from a very toxic, dangerous background. And then the third thing is fasting. I didn't have a choice. I couldn't eat. I didn't have any hunger because that's also the nature of, of um, ascites is it takes away this it's a metabolic wasting process. So I had no hunger. Um, that was the first phase. Two years later, when I thought I was still dying because I still had active like disease in my body and high, high markers, I took my bucket list on the road and went to Europe for seven months backpacking and ended up with the worst illness of my life in Portugal. I thought cancer was hard. That was this two weeks of delirium fevers, well over 104 degrees, where wow. I basically chattered my teeth out of my head and just had to lay on a couch um, and not, I mean, literally to the brink of death multiple times. It was after that experience that my immune system upgraded. And then wow. I started to make headway on this. I was able to kind of like keep a single nostril up above the water for two years and then suddenly pop through something. Now also remember in this time, I didn't expect to live. I didn't expect to survive it. I wanted to understand why. That's what I was focused on was understanding why this was happening. And so here I was a biology chemistry major who suddenly in the awareness, because one of the first books I read after my diagnosis was Quantum Healing by Deepak Chopra, mm. who a girl from Kansas in 1991, that book does not just show up miraculously. <laughs> okay. no and that shifted so much for me and I started exploring. I got curious. I wanted to know why. I'm like, if I'm going to go out, I want to understand this pattern for me. And it just kept opening and opening and opening. I started going back to work, but working with the, because I worked at a detox, I started working with the native healers that would come in and support because they lived on four Indian reservations. So I'd start doing sweat lodge and learning about their old ways of, of you know, how they approached you know, things. I started to work in an herb, herbal shop and take classes from them and start to understand the power of herbal medicines. I started working in a health food store so I could get massive discounts to buy the, you know, get all the leftover supplements and discounted food or the food they were going to throw away. That's how I nourish myself. I had multiple jobs where I was like cleaning houses, but cleaning houses of people like rolfers and acupuncturists so I could trade for my healthcare. Mm -hmm. I was so poor. I lived in a teepee for two years with my husband. It was also the best stinking years of our lives. He was my then boyfriend, now husband, living off the land where every single night an owl would land on our teepee poles and sing us to sleep because it would dingle our little wind <laughs> And we'd be sun when we turn out the lanterns every night, the coyotes would all sing us to bed. We'd wake up in the morning with the elk bedded down around us. There was a hospital built where our teepee was. People would come and leave offerings on our, because they would think we're just like a random teepee in a field and they realized, oh shit, someone lives here. <laughs> There's no walk on the door. It changed everything for me. And then another dive in, I took a, I took a spiritual dive into what we are now able to talk about more in the world is I did an accidental because again, girl from Kansas who'd never even smoked a joint. I decided to be a really good idea to eat an entire baggie of mushrooms while everyone else was having like a cap. I didn't know what I was getting into. Like, These are really helpful and healing. I kept eating them and everyone realized it was happy. Like, oh no. Um, <laughs> yeah. Oh no is it. Cause the next few days of my life were like, whoa. But it was also what we're now seeing in the research, like Harvard studies and whatnot. 
we were giving these to patients who were dying to help them deal with their dying experience and not be so afraid of it. That's what it did for me. It took away, and that was within the first, the first couple of months of my diagnosis, that took away, away my fear of mortality, that mm. took away my fear of dying. And it actually took away my fear of living, which was even more my block. Wow. And so it's basically pulled away the veil for me to just live like absolutely out loud and intentionally from that moment forward almost 29 years in the making. Wow. So. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. I mean, what I hear is like you just like completely re-anchored and reconnected with you, with that soul that was put on this earth. And like you said, in the beginning, you know, you found your purpose through that journey that you had. And like all of this just brought you to that. And you, it's that reconnection that happened with something bigger and, and with yourself. And it's, it's amazing here just the yeah. things that showed up in your life too. It's like, I love yeah. how you, you relate to the, you know, the girl from Kansas. How does that book <laughs> land in your lap? How do these mushrooms land in your lap? Like, man. Well, I feel like your next book needs to be like an autobiography of all of this. Yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> yes. I love it. I love it. Well, we do have another book coming out, which is pretty amazing. Um, because it's, it's been Let's in, talk about that, yeah. Two, well, yeah, it's been like in the one mix for two years because people would read the book metabolic approach to cancer or people would say, well, I don't have cancer, so I don't need to read it. And I'm like, mm. luckily people who would, who would read it would say, wow, this is for people beyond cancer. Yeah. So the next book is definitely more of a call to action for everybody beyond mm -hmm. the cancer okay. before the cancer diagnosis. And ironically, um, Jess and I went back to the, to the writing board in the last couple of months and kind of pivoted a few things. And the title of the book is pandemic proof. And basically oh because amazing. it's like, we now have a collective understand that this language I've been saying for 20 some years yeah. now actually has a collective understanding. Yeah. Now I'll have a vocabulary mm -hmm. that's like, wow, you could be living in Indonesia and get this as someone living say in Texas, right? Like suddenly I realized there are so many gifts in the way that we now can perceive health and well-being and treatment and prevention and understanding of things that seem so outside of us, but are actually so intimate with our environment mm -hmm. around us. Mm -hmm. So that's exciting. And then a mistletoe book is coming out with a colleague, some colleagues of mine by Great. Christmas, which is kind of apropos. <laughs> yeah, uh, Perfect. Perfect timing. Yeah. yeah. And then the building of this, I mean, talk about yeah. within the first two years of my diagnosis, I started having these unbelievable, I called them dreams. I understand them today more as visions. I saw this land. It was very, it was a desert landscape. I saw it very, 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 very clearly. Um, uh, knew, like I just kept getting these images of gather, gather, gather. It's all I could see for the first few years. And then it started manifesting into sort of buildings and other different things. And then in my years, the last 20 years, I've traveled all over the world to meet different healers, to visit different hospitals, different research institutes, to see how people are thinking about and approaching cancer from a variety of ways. And I would get little images like, wow, I've seen that somewhere before. And I'd take a little note and draw it or take a picture and collect it. Basically, I had, the, had this huge notebook. And a couple of years ago, I had some folks that have helped fund a clinical trial at Hopkins say, you know, we, you've been talking about this institute for some time, and this, this center for some time. Can we take a stab at it? Can we take a look? Can we hand that off? And I basically handed these visions and all these lists and all these ideas off to an incredible um, team of architects who gave physical mm. representation and manifestation of this vision. And when they showed to me, I just started bawling. Like it, it was just this moment of like home, you mm. know, home. And we are literally day within 24 hours of knowing if the spot, I mean, I knew when I landed on this piece of property in February, that this was it, this is the spot. 
And it's crazy that it's like, all of these things are aligning. It took, you know, that's where I think people think, oh, you just do this one thing and you're done. It's ongoing. It's not like you get, it's like, it's an ongoing process. So when people are sitting or hearing me talk about this hospital, it's coming to fruition. Like, wow, that happened fast. I'm like, yeah, almost 30 years. (laughs) (laughs) And I did not think it would ever come to fruition, but it's starting to look that way. And it is the, the, now is the time because trying to have these conversations a few years ago, no one was ready for this. They didn't understand Mm -hmm. a billionaire philanthropist almost helped me launch this about six, seven years ago. Hmm. And then he decided to invest in proton radiation hospitals. Right. So, idea. you know, like, I mean, <laughs> not quite the time, but now is the time. Now it's is the time. Now, you know, win. So, yeah. Wow. yeah. And so needed right now. Yeah. yeah. I just, I keep thinking of you and, and Steve in the, in the teepee. And I just like, I see you guys there and, and just, you know, what you were, the, the blessings Jeez. that you put onto the, to the land uh, to, to allow this to show up in your life. I mean, it's, it's amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 And it just shows a journey of like patience. It shows a journey of like every day making the choice, right. Yeah. Making those choices that push you or pull you actually to this space that you're going to be in now to help even more people. Mm-hmm. So amazing. Yeah. So let's, 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 um, I mean, we could talk to you for hours, obviously, <laughs> I know, this is amazing. Um, but I just want to make sure that people, how can, how can they access your information? You've got the book, there's another, another one coming out, but if you can just let us know and we'll put them in the show notes too, mm-hmm. but uh, Thank you. what's the best place to connect with you? Come find me on Dr. Nasha, D-R-Nasha, N-A-S-H-A.com. That's kind of a collective right now. It has some links to the Believe Big Institute of Health. It has links to books and future books. It has links to Metabolic Approach to Cancer Masterminds. I'm now facilitating for physicians from around the world. I just graduated my first oh, 12 doctors, which was amazing. Sign us up for the next one. It's starting in September. I'm really proud of it because, again, my technology skills are so terrible that I pushed myself to all levels of, of being to grow and create something. Um, and now I realize these doctors, like they've all contributed to it and they're ready to help the next generation of graduates come through too. So that's happening. You can also find me on a bunch of the social media worlds, which I just learned recently that my Instagram handle is Dr. Nasha Inc. <laughs> Maybe Dr. Nasha Winters. So don't quote me on that, but if you look for me there, you can see all my links on my website. And then I've got a mass metabolic approach to cancer Facebook group at Dr. Nasha Inc. Facebook group, as well as my personal, which is just Dr. Nasha Winters, any of those reach out because I feel like there is this collective movement and I want to, I want to collaborate. I want strategic partnerships in my life. Like no other, you asked earlier, like, how can we be involved in the hospital? I'm like, Oh, don't worry. You all already, <laughs> we already are. So, like, it's done. It is yeah. done. Yeah. yeah. Amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you for all your gifts and all that you share with the world. It's, it's so needed. I mean, if you, if you're not watching this um, on YouTube or Facebook and you're just hearing her, but if you like, you can just imagine this like ray of sunlight just coming mm-hmm. beaming from Nasha's face and just being. So mm-hmm. thank you for being that light for everybody. Yeah. And you know, and just our, my first meeting of you was like, you're, you're so warm. You're so welcoming. You're so loving. You're, mm-hmm. you're probably the easiest person to, to talk to on the planet, which is such a gift as a doctor, you know, mm-hmm. it just shows you're exactly in the right place where you're supposed to be helping the people that you are and it's um yeah it's an honor to speak to you today yeah so thank you thank you love you both love Love you too being the light and the um, path for all of us too thank you thank you we hope you enjoyed this episode of the health ignited podcast 
Be sure to download, subscribe, and share as we build this conscious community together. You can also find us on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, and our website, drsjensen.com. Please note all information on this podcast is not and should not be taken as medical advice. Please see a healthcare professional to receive the care needed. Thank you for sharing this time with us, igniting your health freedom. And welcome to the tribe.